Welcome to How CMOs Commit, the Siegel and Gale podcast that explores how the world's top CMOs are building their brands and the professional commitments they're making as leaders. From the decisions facing CMOs to the commitments they're forging, these conversations are uniquely vulnerable and strategic. In this episode, Siegel and Gale's global CMO, Margaret Malloy, honors International Women's Day 2023 with a special edition of the Future of Branding Roundtable Series. Recorded live in Dubai, Dublin, London, New York, and San Francisco, Margaret welcomes leading CMOs for in-depth conversations on brand building and inclusive storytelling. This is how CMOs commit. Hello, I'm Margaret Malloy, the Global Chief Marketing Officer at Siegel & Gale, and I'm delighted to be back live in San Francisco with our local team to welcome you to our annual celebration of International Women's Day and Women's History Month. It is such a joy to see dozens of clients, colleagues, leaders in the San Francisco marketing community, guests of all genders. So, International Women's Day. It's a day celebrating social, economic, cultural, and political progress for women. It's also a day to, from our perspective, to celebrate women in the present and examine our ambitions and indeed progress. Today, we are going to have that conversation through the lens of brands and inclusive storytelling. I should mention before we continue that I've had the privilege of traveling to Dubai, Dublin, London, and New York to host these conversations. And in the spirit of inclusion, in addition, this panel and all our conversations are being recorded on the How CMOs Commit podcast to make it available to everyone. I invite you now to consider subscribing to How CMOs Commit. Five-star ratings, always appreciated. And you will be notified when we drop this and all of the episodes. So as I said, today it's about brands and inclusive storytelling. Should brands play a role in gender equity? If so, what is that role? What are examples of programs that are advancing gender equity? And very importantly, in this economic context, what are the business results of those programs? Well, those are the primary questions we're going to address here today. And do stick around because we have a surprising detour towards the end. So with the introductions complete, let's meet our panel. So I'm going to invite all of you in the spirit of efficiency to introduce yourselves. Who are you? Name your company. What's your hometown? And finish this sentence in one word or one phrase. Embracing gender equity is relevant to our brand because. Tiffany, will you get us started, please? Sure. Uh, I'm Tiffany Xinyuan. I'm the CMO of OpenWeb. So we are a community engagement platform that works with over a thousand publishers and brands to make sure they had their own first party data, user safety, and not relying on the word gardens. 
And um, to complete the sentence, um, equity is important to our brand because it's literally written in our mission and vision. And I can expand more later on. But my hometown is Shanghai, China. Beautiful, Jamie. Please. Great.、Um, nice to be here. Thank you, Jamie Moldavsky. I'm the Chief People and Customer Officer for Nielsen. And Nielsen, as many of you know, measures all things audiences. And so, very similarly, it is an important part of actually our purpose statement. Thank you to Siegel and Gale for our actual purpose statement. A little advertorial, but it is actually、uh, a core part of who we are, which is making sure that all. All members of every audience are counted. Right, that every individual is counted. So I can talk more about that. And my hometown now is San Francisco, and I originally hail from Chicago. Hello, nice to be back. I was here first in 2018, I think. You were, Gail, and you came back. And I also see a number of returning audience members. So always welcome. Everyone here is an open invitation. We expect you to be back again.、Yes. My name is Gail Moody Bird. I am currently vice president of marketing of LinkedIn Sales Solutions. So many people don't know LinkedIn has many businesses. We have a talent business, which we're known for. We have a marketing business, which is our ads business, and we have a sales solutions business where we sell our product to primarily B two B salespeople. When I think about equity, LinkedIn is the embodiment of that. We have a vision which is to create economic opportunity for every member of the global workforce. So, if I had a word, the word would be every. Really important. That is sort of embedded in that is the idea of inclusion. And、uh, my hometown is Youngstown, Ohio. Ah, Julie. It's almost the、uh, Hall of Fame for NFL.、Mm. Canton. <laughs> Pivoting us to sports,、uh, I'm Julie Haddon. I am the Chief Marketing Officer of the NWSL, which stands for National Women's Soccer League. It is the premier pro league for women in America, and many of the best in the world play in our league and call the NWSL home. When you think about the World Cup in 2019 in France, 2015, and the one before that. The the women won the last two World Cups, and so when you think about who's going to be playing this summer in France, I mean in、uh, Australia and in New Zealand, the players that comprise the NWSL, the 20 plus players already are in our league. So I think it's fair to say the best in the world do play here. I am originally from Chicago, also, and now、uh, live here in the Bay Area. Hi everyone. I'm Samantha Wu. I am the former Chief Marketing Officer of BrainTrust, a Web3 protocol, as well as the Facebook app at Meta. I am originally from Sydney, Australia, but、um, are now has become a U.S. citizen and Bay Area transplant, courtesy of my husband. And in terms of equity and why that matters to brands. Given that I'm coming off of two former roles, I would say it matters because it just drives better business outcomes. If we've all read the literature, I think a recent study said that if we just close the gender gap, we would drive 12 trillion in global GDP in just two years. So it's not just a social and moral issue; it's an economic challenge. And so, I think, irrespective of the brands you work on, inclusion is critical to, to business success because it's a representation of the world that we live in and the world that we serve. Yes, well said. Hi everyone. I'm Elle McCarthy. I'm the former VP of Brand and Social Impact at Electronic Arts (EA), the video game company. My hometown is London, and I believe that equity is crucial to businesses because 
homogeneity is insanity. When you consider the fact that over 50%, slightly over 50% of the world's population is female, but they've historically had far more buying power in many categories than men. And the first minority white generation has been born and is being born in the United States today, which means that the buying power even more so lies not in the hands of the homogenous monolith, but in all people's hands. And so um, the fact that we aren't always acknowledging that and we're still seeing the vast majority of creators and people who are funded to like make product and bring product to market still being majority straight, majority white and majority male, there's a real disconnect in the audiences that we all need to serve and how we're delivering for them. Okay, so as you can see, we've convened a rather representative sample of international women. I'm going to invite each of you now to share an example of initiative that you have led or your company has led with the objective of advancing gender equity. Tell us about the program and indeed, perhaps more important, what you've learned from it. So going to go right down the line again, Tiffany. Sure, I can do that. So over six months ago, OpenWeb uh, partnered with World Economic Forum and launched the whole campaign concept of uh, the community economy. So as I mentioned, what we do is we help all the publishers like Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Fortune, all the way to the brands to make sure their subscri sub subscribers feel safe online, their community. And so it's for the brands. And what we discovered is that there are two fundamental reasons why we see so much discrimination, hate speech, harassment against women online. It's because fundamentally, the people who were designing the products, policies, enforcement are majority white male. So if you don't fix the problem from the get-go, you can't avoid the consequences of harassment against a woman online. So, so that's one fundamental reason how you get problems solved from the get-go. And the second thing is, in the past 15 years, as we all know, data was centralized, people was, were productized, people are not at the center of decisions. And it's changing with the creator economy. So the question is how businesses can drive community in an inclusive way. It's no longer growth at all costs, but actually putting people at the center of it. So we launched a campaign and a project with the World Economic Forum to drive all the C-suite across the board globally to understand what the community economy is, is that you can't win or the companies who don't invest in equity and the trust today won't be the companies you hear in 10 years. And that's the narrative we believe in, just like 15 years ago, if you didn't invest in digital transformation, mm. you don't exist anymore. So um, so we really launched this narrative with the World Economic Forum. We see more and more companies coming online and really putting equity, trust, and the people at the center of its decisions rather than data growth at all costs at the center of their strategies. So Tiffany, I want to spend a moment and double click on some of the assumptions inherent in that campaign, which is a very interesting um, assertion that companies need to invest at the same level they've done for the digital transformation. I suppose the question in my mind is what gives you confidence in that recommendation? Yeah, I think there are a few reasons. The real three pillars behind the community economy are safety, privacy, which is the first party data piece, 
And then on top of that, the diversity of engagement. But if you think about that, it's like a Maslow pyramid of mm-hmm. what people want. No company can survive if you really rely on Facebook and Amazon and the Google's data. And everybody in the room know very well you need to build your first-party data. And how you build that, you need your own community. And only when you have safety, you have the data in respect of the dignity of the people, then you can build engagement. And that could be advertising for the longest time, but you start to to see subscription models and the retail media. So I think that assumption, the assertion is based on what people need in the new coming era of the web, because we've learned enough mistakes in the past 15 years. So let's assume I'm persuaded by your argument. What's the greatest challenge you are encountering when you put this forward to brands and how are they addressing it? Yeah, 70% of advertising is still based in Word Garden. So, you know, it takes many, many brands, many, many communities to have their first party data and for CMOs to say, or agencies, partners for CMOs to say, okay, I have other alternative to the water gardens. So it takes time and takes enablers like Open Web to say we are an open alternative to the work gardens to help you accelerate it. So I think that inertia of 15 years of investment of data centralization is a big blocker. And I think another thing is everyone, I think on the panel and everybody in the audience take the responsibility for is a mentality shift. It's so, so, so entrenched in our mind that ROI, it is your PL, it is your is your financial formula, which often doesn't include this piece of equity and the trust. When we CMOs in the boardroom and with CFOs, this conversation needs to happen. So I think another blocker, that's why we launched the campaign, is we, we're not starting with CMOs. Um, for that conversation, we're starting with the CEOs, yeah. CFOs, chief digital officers in the World Economic Forum, because we want them to understand that if you don't put equity and the trust in your formula for your ROI today, you will not be relevant in 15 years. Very interesting. And no doubt you've hinted at the notion of the short-term orientation of so much of the capital markets. And the legacy. Yeah, and the, the mentality, the inertia of the legacy that, that the whole world is carrying. Very briefly, Tiffany, that's a tough context. What gives you most hope? The hope is um, I'm working every day with brilliant operators um, in the company. So I know when people choose to join Open Web, they care about it. So every day when I see my colleagues working long hours to do it, not just for the financial upside for pre-IPO company, but for the real mission they care about. I think that's very important. And the other is the events like that. Like you initiate, you organize, and many other places where I start to see it is on top of mind for so many CMOs and CEOs and CFOs. And that gives me hope. Beautiful. Well, Jamie, similar question. Talk to us about an initiative you've driven at Nielsen and the impact of it 
in this topic around inclusion and gender equity. Great, happy to. So just a little bit of background, because most of you know Nielsen probably as a ratings company that says how do TV shows perform? That's kind of a little bit of what we originated from. But really we measure all consumers and their consumption and discovering consumption of media across all media. So everything from podcasts, music to streaming, you name it, kind of every media source, right? Sports included. So importantly, what we know is that every aspect of the advertising and content ecosystem rely on our data. But what we have come to appreciate is that they don't always look at the data the same way. And so one of the things, I mean, I was sharing the core to our purpose is powering a better media future for all people. And that all people means you have to count everybody. And everybody has to have an equal voice. And it's not the people who can afford cable or the people who sit in wealthy areas and can afford to be overrepresented. It has to be representative of every consumption of every media around the world. And so as part of that, we created a really an analytic thought leadership piece that's called Being Seen on Screen. And the whole purpose of it was to understand not just what content's being created with diverse representation in it, but who's actually consuming the media? How is that media actually reaching people? What are the themes beyond just, yes, we have a black t- a show with black, all black cast members in it, right? Was it produced by people of color? What were the themes of that show? And so we've done this kind of in-depth analysis, and I thought I would just share a couple of high-level mm-hmm. insights from it and then kind of what that has uh, turned into power. But just as examples... Uh, Women are over 50% of the population, 50.5, I think somebody else used that statistic. But across, and this is more on the TV, streaming, cable side of things, between 40 and 45% of the time on screen. So even just women are underrepresented on the screen. And then as you go through different segments of the population, disability, those with disability, approximately 25% of the population has a disability, only 8 to 9% of people seen on the screen have a disability. Right. Um, For the Latin communities, 20 percent of the population, roughly between eight and nine percent of the time on screen for the black community, about 14 percent. In that instance, it's interesting that it is actually equally representative of time on the screen. But the themes of the of the type of content tend to be very different. So they tend to be more about um, sports or actually about what we would call disillusionment or disadvantaged individuals. So then we actually get into the nature of the content itself. And we find that there are really important discrepancies between not just how much time that segment is represented on screen, but the nature of how it's represented. And then beyond that, we then went to the actual audience and said, how do you feel? And what you would expect is that people say, yeah, I see a person that looks like me, but I don't see a person that really represents me. And so there are all these nuances to, if you peel back the onion, it's very easy at a surface level to say, oh, well, we produce a lot of content that features X, Y, Z segment. But at the end of the day, is that truly representative and and is it resonating with the audience? And so what the, the purpose of the study was really to enlighten all aspects of sort of the media industry, everyone from content creators to the distributors, publishers of content to advertisers and agencies, because often an advertiser or an agency will think that they are putting their money against something that actually really reaches the right audience. And it may technically reach the right audience, but the level of engagement is actually far, far, far inferior to what the numbers would suggest. And Jamie, what has the response been to the study? Are you seeing content creators revisit their programming? And from the audience perspective, 
to what degree is engagement measured? Are you seeing better receptivity? Can you track it down to purchase behavior? Yes, absolutely. So one of the things we're able to do now, and we have a, a part of our company that's called GraceNote, which is actually when you all go to search for something on cable or on streaming and you say, I want to find a Tom Cruise movie, all the metadata behind that is this company called GraceNote. And so we marry up the GraceNote data with actually the Nielsen data. And what you then have is pretty much at a representative level of individuals who is looking for what content, what content are they watching, where are they watching it, how long do they watch it for. So we're then able to put that information together. And what I would say is it probably surprised us the level of engagement, because you would think that like a Disney, as an example, knows a lot about who consumes Disney. But what they don't know is who consumes Disney and consumes everything else. And so knowing where their audience is, spending their time away from them is as valuable as with them. And then I would say where we've gotten surprising amount of interest has really been mm. from um, the content creation side. So especially in the, in the creator economy, YouTube is a great example where we actually have interest and demand from individual content creators saying they want access to more of a, uh, you know, some simpler form of that data so they can understand who their audience is. Are they actually accurately representing that audience or not? And you find little subtleties that, that over-index like LGBT over-indexes on holiday shows. Like for some reason, holiday content overly features LGBT. Whereas for black and Latino, it is um, sports Right. And so it just helps shine a light. Like mm -hmm. we look at ourselves as holding up the mirror to what people are actually doing. And what we're finding is a lot of demand around the content creators and the content distributors, partly because advertisers want to be sure that they're actually reaching the right audience with the right message and not right. So they're actually demanding now that content get created better. So that all sounds very positive in terms of the dynamic. If you were to take out your crystal ball and shine it up, what's your prediction? Whatever time frame is meaningful, five, 10 years, what do you see? Do you see much of a difference in terms of the content we're consuming and as content creators, the nature and representation of the content that's being produced? Yeah, I am optimistic. I really, because I really think if you even just look at media consumption and the shift that obviously accelerated during COVID to streaming, people watch what they want to watch when they want to watch it. And so the power has already really shifted into the hands of the audience, but it's shifted more in terms of kind of time management as opposed to content. Uh, but content is rapidly filling because you're, you're going to find the content you want where you want it and watch it when you want it on whatever device you want to watch it on. And so I do think as, you know, there is more and more power with TikTok and YouTube and some of the alternative media creators, they're providing a really strong set of content that is changing the nature of what's in the market. Super interesting to watch going forward. So now, Gail, let's go B2B. Different business models, same question. B2B, but I'm going to use a LinkedIn B2C example. Oh. So I don't know how many people have heard about the Crown Act, but I will speak about our partnership with Dove. Mm -hmm. um, we mm -hmm. created something called the Crown Coalition. The purpose of the Crown Coalition is to eliminate race-based discrimination because of hair. Um, and so I have a couple of stats. We've done some research with Dove, sponsored by Dove and LinkedIn, and have found that black women's hair is two and a half times more likely to be deemed unprofessional in the workplace. And that 66% of women, black women, change their hair for a job interview, including me. I've done that in the past. 
And so there are many, many examples of systematic racism in the workplace for people wearing their hair and even beyond black individuals, people who decide to color their hair or shave their hair. We have a very provocative Korean VP uh, of brand who shaves half of her hair. So our point, our perspective is the workplace should be inclusive of all expressions of who we are. And so it launched in February during Black History Month. It's continued to be focused on during Women's History Month. We've had tremendous, like millions of points of engagement with content, interviews, videos, um, all kinds of data points. And we have three things that we talk about that we've learned from this. The first is the importance of authenticity. I think it takes a bit of bravery for a brand to um, to take on this kind of issue. Dove's been known to do this for years and years with body size, body image, all of that. But I think it uh, for LinkedIn it was a bit unusual. But we were also pushed by some of the people on the marketing and communications leadership team to do something so brave. The second is partnership. Uh, I think our brand team did a great job of finding somebody who was like-minded. Dove is known for that. I think the positive association with a brand like Dove shows that we're a very inclusive organization. And then I think the power of storytelling. Um, so many of us who are individuals who have suffered this kind of discrimination are on LinkedIn telling our stories mm -hmm. through posts, through videos. And so I just love your points about storytelling because I think it's so important. And we really want to bring that authentic voice to our platform to make it more relatable and more inclusive. So interesting, Gail. I think one could argue that Dove and that real beauty campaign was the OG yes. of inclusive storytelling. I'm going to pull on a thread there for a moment in the spirit of provocation. There is a little bit of backlash right now. I mean, Dove, they're owned by Unilever, right? And I think many of us have seen the conversation where the investor community in the capital markets have argued they've lost the plot that it's, it's not about these inclusion themes. It's about sort of the near-term stock price and the capital markets component. So not asking you to defend Unilever per se, but more, <laughs> but, but more broadly, this discussion around, you know, is it about purpose or is it about users on the LinkedIn platform and uh, associated member engagement? How do you reconcile all that? I think for us, it's about loyalty. And so we're a very metrics-driven organization. Every two weeks, the entire leadership team of the company is on looking at weekly active users, looking at engagement. And we find that when we present content that people can relate to, that drives loyalty beyond that core white male blue suit user base, which nothing wrong with that, but we are trying to be more expansive than that. We are measuring that engagement and we find that it has a positive impact, not only on our perception, but on our metrics, which then Microsoft as our owner is very, very interested in the level of engagement and our ability to monetize our audience. And so we don't find those objectives at odds at all. 
That's fantastic. Any other learning you would share from that program or your initiatives? Because I've, I'm a very big LinkedIn user, um, as many of my friends here in the audience know. I'm a huge fan, longtime fan of the platform. And you've certainly been working harder, it seems, to be a very inclusive and, and Tiffany's word again, safe place for community to convene. Any learnings you would share as regards gender equity and the platform? Well, one thing I would say, and I was going to talk about this a little bit later in terms of embracing equity, but we have found our work in this area as a great talent attractor. Mm. And so as we think about our organization growing, our organization finding new talent, most of the people who come to interview with us remark on an impression that was made upon them by something that they saw. The reason I'm at LinkedIn right now, mm -hmm. I saw our chief economist on 60 Minutes talking about the talent marketplace and um, the trends in hiring. And so what we do is not only for the shareholders, not only for the health of the business, but it's also been a great, great talent attractor. And so we're learning the more we do this kind of thing, it increases our ability, especially in the market was competitive. It's a little different now, but when you're competing for talent, it's one of the things that goes in the plus column for us that has allowed us to have a, you know, a very, very talented org. I have two of my team members here with me now um, who happen to be Vidya and Nicole, and it's just a great way to attract talent, to stand for something, stand behind it, and take some risk. That's an excellent reminder. Thank you for that, Gail. So Julie, look, you told us you're inherently about equity and gender equity and equity more broadly. Talk to us about a program in addition, over and above the, the mission of the Soccer League and, and tell us what you've learned from that and how it's received. Well, well first of all, I'm very jealous because uh, I spent the first half of my career in tech. I was really early at eBay, 2003. Ah. I was at Twitter for a stint uh, when I was consulting and was there when there were less than I'll take 20 people. There were 800,000 users. SoFi, when we were naming the company and going to market. Zynga, when we had our IPO. So these are just a couple of the places I've been in the Silicon Valley ecosystem. And then I went from there um, to NFL in 2016. So I kind of pivoted over to sports. And I listened to the data and I'm like, oh my God, I miss those days where we had so many. <laughs> I'm like, I'm sitting here trying to get like, efficacy of a paid media spend when you live offline in entertainment, as you know, in Nielsen world, like it's not easy. So look, I mean, I've been at the company six-ish plus months. I built the team from scratch. I've tripled my team, meaning we have like three people. But, um, <laughs> but in all seriousness, uh, my team at my previous job was bigger than our entire company. Wow. So there's not much I could say in terms of something that would be remotely on par with some of the things you would see at an EA or at a LinkedIn or at a Nielsen. But I would say, you know, the way we're approaching our biggest campaign, which we just launched the season two days ago, we shattered records in attendance up almost 50% in year after year for opening day. That's going to be announced. That's why I've been on the phone all morning trying to get that release out the door. But you heard it first here. I'm just kidding. <laughs> anyway, um, we had opening day records where you're going to see a game in Snapdragon Stadium in San Diego, which is the Wave, and that's one of our teams, uh, played the Chicago Red Stars. And the stadium is full. It's 
32,031 specific, but something like 31,108, whatever the press release says, yes. Mm -hmm. And it was this insane energy. And then the next night, it's at, at Angel City, if y'all have heard of them, but Natalie Portman's an owner of that club, mm -hmm. and Alexis Ohanian, and Julie Ehrman, and Karen Nortman, and big name in tech. Um, Stadium packed again, sold out, 22,000. And there's fireworks and there's parachute people coming in from the sky and there's pyrotechnics and there's bands that do the opening. There was nothing sad about women's sports because I think what you hear often is, oh, they didn't have the weight room or look at this, the equity is, and it's failing and it has failed and we're here to do something about it. But it was a magical moment. Um, and I, I feel really good about how we're showing up with the swagger and with the same way when I worked at the NFL that we would approach entertainment and marketing and disruption. And what's caused that change? So you've sort of identified a, a delta, the before and after, or is it the delta in the perceptions and the reality? What's driving the energy? Well, I mean, I think there's a few things. One is they really are the best product in the world. I mean, if you think about... With all due respects to anyone who watched the World Cup and see where the women went in 2019 and where the men went, I mean, I don't know if you could name, you know, if there are people heard in this room of Alex Morgan or Megan Rapinoe, mm -hmm. but do you know somebody who plays in another league? And that's the hard thing. The best in the yeah. world do play inside our league. So I think that's just part of it is recognizing what's happening culturally. And then I think from another standpoint, not just the competition on the pitch, but I think there's a time now when you see what's happened with women over the past year and in recent months and in the last administration and go on and on and on that we've set back. And, yes. and so people are rooting for us in so many ways. So there's a lot of growth in that. There's a lot of growth in investing in this league. We just took in uh, the new group that I referenced, Angel City. They're backed by, again, Alexis Ohanian, who founded Reddit and mm -hmm. Kerr Norman. You look at the team, The Wave, are backed by uh, Ron Burkle, who's well-known for being uh, an NHL owner. Michelle Kang bought the Washington Spirit, and she outbested the uh, trying to buy the club from Todd Bowley, who may, you may not know, owns the Lakers, now owns Chelsea. So we have like incredible ownership. We have a woman and a man that are a couple named Angie Long who run a hedge fund out of Kansas City that just bought the Kansas City Current and have taken them to new levels. So there's a lot of momentum around ownership and valuations and there's more to come. We're gonna be announcing new teams very, very soon. So franchise expansion, there were over 30 clubs interested. So both from an audience, consumption, growth, fan interest, fan growth, and, um, and valuations. I mean, I think the cultural momentum plus that is on our back. Any challenges you would highlight and how you're overcoming them, be it in culture or be it in the economic model? Yeah, I think one of the things that is, is interesting to me and it's something that I want to address is that still 4%-ish cover women's sports in the media because the media is such a platform for how you hear about things. Yeah. We really need to address that. So here we were breaking the record for opening day on Saturday night at Snapdragon in San Diego. And I turn on ESPN and you're reading or you're watching or you're seeing on the ticker, we weren't on that, read about third string trades in another league or you read about things like in another country or another sport like you know, a subgroup of a motorsport or something, but this is soccer, which is truly America's game and the global game. If many of you've heard, it's often referred to as the beautiful game, mm -hmm. but it is the highest growing sport in the world. And, um, and it needs to reflect that in our media. So that's a challenge that we're all looking at and how we overcome that.
yeah. that I like to do. Was it Maradona that said they called it the beautiful game? Might have been. Or Pele. Like, I, I don't know. know. It's Some guy. So it's been a long, <laughs> been a long uh, time. Uh, but even so, like, uh, I would say if you haven't seen it, DDB in Australia, I think it was Australia, New Zealand, made a spot. Have you heard Correct the Internet? Has anyone heard about that? But it just came out about a month ago. And you have a young girl walk on the pitch and she said, hey, Internet, who's the all-time scorer in goals? And they said, and again, forgive me, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it was like Cristiano Ronaldo, he had 185 goals. And then she said, and who had the all how many goals did Christine Sinclair have? And it's like 200. But the internet spit back Cristiano Ronaldo uh. instead of, and then she said, well, isn't 200 more than 185? And then I went to chat GPT and I was looking at what they were saying and they got it right because the way the AI was is automatically corrected. So, I mean, I think... Part of it is just legacy and part of it is how we open up the storytelling to bring more of this forward when you read about and you see, and I'm hoping this summer becomes a moment for, you know, last time the World Cup was in France, there was 1.2 billion people watching it in just the world. I mean, that is a moment that is yeah. transcending just any sport. It's, it's culture. Extraordinary. Thank you for that, Julie. All right, we'll go back to tech, Samantha. If I may, I, before I share a specific campaign and program, I wanted to take a step back and, you know, as we think about this topic of inclusive community, inclusive storytelling, the thing that I think about a lot as a marketing leader is when I think about the craft of brand building, who is the work made by and for? And, and it starts both internally and externally. And I know it might sound very basic, but... Certainly, and you know, I'll, maybe I'll share with my meta experience just because of the sheer scale of the platform and the three billion consumers we served. But thinking a lot about who actually makes the work, as in who is the internal person who's writing the brief? Have I staffed the team that can provide a unique and authentic point of view to this idea and this piece that I'm going to, to bring to life through a campaign to the agencies and partners that I work with? And how am I going to produce? edit and create the content for this. It is really, really hard to do that. So it's both a triumph and a challenge in that it's very easy to go with the tried and true list of folks we know, or hey, this product marketer or brand marketer on my team, you know, he's really great. Let him write the brief on International Women's Month. And you have to actively and intentionally almost change how you make the work so that the work then becomes true and authentic. And when you do that, that's what inclusive community is. And so, you know, when I was running, when I was operating as the CMO of the Facebook app, you know, we had the enormous challenge and the opportunity of serving 3 billion people. And part of a lot of the brand work that we did was around how do we drive inclusive community because we did believe it was a key brand behavior we could stand by. And for many of us who are in the area and, and know tag, I mean, the, the heavy headwinds and the brand reputational challenges, you know, for Facebook are, are immense and enormous. And so like many brands, we set out to do a series of working campaigns that touched on cultural moments, International Women's Day Month being one of them. But I think the biggest challenge and learning we had was how do we actually do this in everything we do, 
right? Not just in how we build the product and how we work with product engineers to ensure that that dating experience you're creating, does it actually serve your core cohort to every single piece of content, every single experience um, that people have on and offline with you. And so we did do a campaign that was social first called Girls Who Drum. And, you know, we had the incredible fortune of utilizing a product proof point of Facebook groups where we had such rich material where we saw women create these groups and support each other every day through, you know, the benign to the magnificent. And we highlighted women who served, women who drummed, mathematicians, scientists, um, comedians. And I think, so it was a obviously a social first campaign because it's Facebook. We obviously created a lot of different content, had partnerships, used the native format of the work to create hive minds and watch parties. And, and I think that my biggest learning for that was how do you make something that is small and very real actually feel really big? Mm-hmm. And how do you tell that story authentically by first actually making the person who's writing that brief and then the agency partners and, and the editor and the photographer that you choose is actually able to reflect a really unique point of view so that the work that then is created isn't representation, but it is truly a part of the community and the issues that you're trying to serve. And so I think we have to talk about success. I mean, obviously in a very data-driven company, we cared a lot about how do we move sentiment points, how much we're able to move how people thought of us, how much we were able to get people to join the product and the groups, what was the feedback we got from the community. And we obviously you know, we're able to, to, to hit or exceed those metrics. But I think for me, that campaign and among many of the ones that, that I was, had the fortune to lead and manage was really about how we were changing the community of our users who used our products and re- having them reevaluate the role of Facebook in, in their life and how, you know, they were able to understand that there was a place for community for them. So longer answer that wanted to kind of start with it kind of starts with some more basic things before you get to the campaign yeah and samantha you said something very basic but very profound i think which is in from my perspective in my career one of the most beautiful things is when women support other women and i want to thank all of you when i asked you to be on this panel thank you for supporting me and supporting us. And thank you to my female colleagues and all my colleagues. It's, it's really in that micro moment where you have authenticity that true inclusion happens. So thank you for that reminder and the segue for that, Samantha. So Elle, Elle, final, final example. EA, uh, what a fun category. Tell us about a, a program that focused on gender at your uh, institution and at your product. Absolutely. And I wish I was talking about the inclusion of women properly into the FIFA games, soon to be AFC, but um, I'm not. But we should talk about that. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a big one. We had driven inclusion of women into the game for a long time, but not teams. You couldn't play as specific characters and you couldn't play properly all of the leagues and it's taken a while obviously there's a lot of licensing involved but there are other reasons why it was slower to happen and one of them I if you haven't read it I love Caroline Criado Perez's work on the gender data gap 
which basically shows that because we don't have the data that these things would be effective for women, um, the norm perpetuates. And so if you end up selling to the population that's already buying or serving the population that's already active, rather than looking at where you can drive growth, you end up missing large things like uh, bringing the women into FIFA up until now. But it's really, really exciting. And um, the team that's leading that is incredible. It's great to see. So I'm going to talk a little bit about something called Positive Play at EA. And I also will do a little precursor to say I started at EA in 2020 um, as the head of brand transformation, but with no team and no budget and no clear remit and no mandate. (laughs) (laughs) And I um, did a three-year transformation at EA, but during that time I had the advantage, which is really rare to get in your career, of building a team completely from scratch, from the ground up. And in a category where there is a lot of difficulty in attracting diverse talent, I was able to build the most diverse team in all of marketing. I believe most likely the most diverse team in all of EA, but I don't have access to that data. By the time I left, my team was just over 30 people. And because I don't discriminate, there were two straight white men who worked on the team. (laughs) There were lots of men. There were lots of white people. There were some straight people. But um, I had a very diverse group of people doing the work I want to talk about. So I'm talking about something called positive play and you can define it as a brand strategy, but you can also define it as a team because it is a team today. It is a product pipeline, it's a set of goals, it is a purpose strategy and it's currently informing all of the work that EA is driving in ESG across social impact, DEI and um, some work in the sustainability space which I think is you know, the most successful marker of the brand strategy is that it is no longer a brand strategy. And maybe there's a proposition somewhere that a brand team has, but the work is truly driven and owned by all of the other parts of the business um, that need to drive it. And so the connection between those two things, I think, is the biggest marker of success. But so when I was starting out, I was very interested in the category challenge in gaming because there's this incredible tension between the audience who are probably one of the most diverse audiences in terms of the opportunity. We know that the gaming audience is just under 50% female. We know that black players and Hispanic Latinx players actually over-index for play versus their white counterparts. We know that the greatest growth audience for gaming is Gen Z and Gen Alpha. And like I said before, um, those generations are increasingly minority white, majority diverse. And so, The mandate for serving this really diverse audience is very, very clear. But there's so many data points, and I'll just give you one of the most extreme ones. Uh, The Guardian published data in 2020 that showed that 97% of funded developers in the UK that year were white men. So the people who actually get to make the games, um, the least diverse group, and obviously like corporate businesses in gaming, they tend to index around 70, 75% male mark. So the the gaming industry has a really long way to go. And it's been so heartening seeing all of the work that's happened in the entertainment media landscape, TV and entertainment. You know, Netflix has led really great work in diverse storytelling, showing that there's a market for niche, um, non-stereotyped representation. And Hollywood has really, I think, overhauled the mix over the last few years. But gaming hadn't quite done that yet. And so there was this real tension. And then there was also the specific data at EA, which was showing that a lot of our franchises were still serving the same audiences that they'd been serving for the last decade. They're very well-loved franchises, but they were still mostly serving plus 35-year-old men. 
And so that meant that our franchises were under-indexing with, with Gen Z and the greatest growing audiences for gaming. We had some other data that showed us that um, the players who were most likely to experience toxicity and harassment on our platforms, we've talked a lot about that on the internet, also bad in gaming, particularly bad in gaming, and it's minority and marginalized groups who experience it the worst. And for the people who do experience it, they play less or they stop playing at all. So there you've got your bottom line impact objective, and it's unusual to establish an objective to mitigate against revenue loss outside of a customer remit, especially if it's a macro piece, but we were able to do that. And so I was looking at all of that at the same time as building my strategy team and starting to work on the strategy for the, for the brand. And I think when you want to set a brand purpose strategy for a company, it's really important to tread the line right between aspiration and where the business is today. Because if you overstep it too far, your most important customer for stage one of brand, which I think is your, your um, employees, are not going to believe in what you're saying and they're going to think of it as a fluffy brand proposition. Wouldn't that be nice? What does it even mean? It doesn't affect me. And so it was really important to start with what was happening already in the company to address this category challenge. And there was a group that was meeting bi-weekly and they had a spreadsheet. It was about 87 items long and it was all of the good things that were happening in the company but they were happening out of different teams different franchises there were only a few things that were centralized our community standards work was a really important thing that hadn't fully been released and published for a while and so that was one centralized piece and there was another piece that was um, engaging in the game development framework to drive more inclusion but those two were centralized and almost everything else was happening at a franchise level because there wasn't a dedicated product team in place to scale across franchises and to centralize. So I said, you know, what we need is a North Star. You can call it brand strategy, you can call it North Star, you can call it a purpose. And it needs to be true today, slightly aspirational, and it will give us a tighter decision-making lens and framework for how we prioritize this work. And then we're going to need a team that is going to prioritize it as, at a product level so that we can build belief that it's happening whilst we apply it to other areas. So the strategy was to expand the positive power of play. And expand means driving more audiences into gaming into play whilst driving up the representation in our games. The positive power of play is about what play can do to drive positive creativity and connection because play is actually good for you when used right. It wakes up your brain. When used wrong, it can be addictive. So mitigating against the negative things that get in the way of play, but expanding that creativity and connection. And then the power of play, and this bit is where it's aspirational and won't be paid off for a while, but that's using the power of game design and play to solve real world problems. Because if you were to apply game developers to solving like climate challenges, mm -hmm. you'll end up with really different solutions. And there are some nascent things that the company was doing, like The Sims has an eco pack. And if you play The Sims and you use mm -hmm. it, it teaches you how to be more environmentally friendly. So we established the strategy, these three pillars. We consolidated the things that were already happening into the pillars. Some of them were deprioritized. And then we helped write the business case for the positive play team who are still in place today. They're heading into year three of creating the roadmap that centralizes features across our, um, across our games. And now just a quick follow-up. How does that intersect with some of the franchises? Name some of the franchises so we're all uh, very clear on how we will see this as we experience it. 
Yeah, so um, there's a really good example in Apex Legends. So that's uh, Apex Legends is a really interesting game because it's basically a first-person shooter. It's an mm-hmm. open world. It's also a live service game. So they update the maps and they update the characters every quarter, but the characters are really diverse, really interesting. Uh, the first ever non-binary character was in Apex. There's a character that's based on Igbo le- legend called Seer, who's like really interestingly both kind of from the alien world of Apex and then also Nigerian. And that's been, um, his character has been constructed really authentically. And so first person, but first person shooters are usually some of the most toxic and mm-hmm. straight white male environments. So it's it's a great game for that reason. A lot of the women who were playing the game, who were experiencing harassment, were um, experiencing it through the headsets. And you can't really police the headsets if you've got voice. But if they wanted to opt out, then they would be um, playing at a disadvantage. Because if you're playing with a team, whether it's a team that you've formed yourself or whether you're dropping into an open world and meeting strangers, you need to be able to say let's go over here mm-hmm. um, and give... So they, they had already been working on something called the Apex Pin system, which basically allows you to um, give directions to other people and communicate, but without using voice so that they wouldn't be playing at a disadvantage if they wanted to drop into an open world. Um, that's the kind of feature that this work will then help to scale across our franchises and that we're able to start storytelling around internally, crucially as well as externally to raise sentiment from more diverse groups towards the brand at a whole, which um, we can measure affects consideration of new franchises, consideration to play, play sessions and, and all of that. It's extraordinary. I mean, the mind boggles with the potential, both in the context of gaming and in the context of social change in general, how we can apply the principles of gaming to generate different outcomes. Really, really interesting possibilities. Thank you for sharing that. So now we're going to have the fun detour that I promised. So, you know, this is heavy stuff. You know, this is complex, whether it's the business goals, the hard questions I've double clicked with all of you on, or indeed the the important and hard work of achieving inclusion. Now at Siegel & Gale, those of you who know our company will recognize that for us, We believe in the power of simplicity as a wonderful way to unlock solutions. And with that in mind, what I've observed over my career here is that for some folk, that can be a little abstract or a little conceptual. What is simplicity? So with the pleasure of having this illustrious panel, I invited each of our guests to bring one physical item to the lunch. And the question is, this is your simplicity object. Why does that object represent simplicity to you and in what way? Gail, will you get us started? What did you bring? My item is a light bulb. It's a Uh newfangled light bulb, but um, it's a rechargeable one, but it's a light bulb. The reason I chose this, this solves one simple problem, which is darkness but it does it with simplicity and practicality. And uh, as we think about our products at LinkedIn, as we think about building things, R&D, engineering, product teams, simplicity is at the core of it. And so sometimes we start with a blank page, a blank piece of paper to say, 
What is our user trying to do? So simplicity is at the core of everything. I also love the metaphor of light bulb moments where new um, ideas come. So that's my item, a light bulb. Fantastic. Julie, what did you bring? I've got something uh, more on the personal side of simplicity. So when we went on lockdown, uh, as many of you who may be parents might have had similar situations, but my kids did not do great. I have one kid who, uh, my son, who's definitely more on the ADHD side, did not do well with the learning remotely. He's mm -hmm. more, had a hard time following the teachers, had a hard time. Our school system wasn't set up as many of you uh, probably have similar with remote learning, I did tell my teacher how to, my son's teacher, how to use a chat function in Google. I mean, it was like I was tech support, I was mom, I was uh, head of marketing, and it was a little crazy. And there was one moment where my son, he was exacerbated, and at this time he was like 11, and he goes, I'm just a dummy, I'm the dumbest one in the world. And I'm like, why would you say that? He goes, because I'm not perfect, I don't have understanding of math. And I have this moment, it was very simple, and I said, it was something my boss at eBay told me one once, which was, don't blank with your swing. And um, that was Gary Briggs. Uh, it, the letter mm -hmm. started with F. Uh, and what was important that. was that, was, um, was when I joined eBay, I had come from the entertainment industry. I was, at, I was at DreamWorks for five years on movies. And, um, and eBay being a much more quant type of a, type of a company, Gary said, don't blank with your swing because he said, stay in the lane that you do the best as, and you, nobody else does what you do and uh, the way I do it. And so I used that for my son and I said, similar, Jacob, you do not have to be a person that's what he calls his perfect person. Just be who you are and find something you love. And he started saying, I love color. And so we started working, if I can have you hold this, um, Jacob started drawing these unique characters, portraits of, of animals and color. And he now has a little store going, a little side hustle. <laughs> he is now, I've made an entrepreneur out of Gary Briggs' feedback, but this is simplicity to me. It's drawing animals and pets and finding his love of color. And that's the thing, it's just a simple moment that could show. And this is one of my favorites. This is Andrew Hoplane from EA's dogs, just so you know, an EA person, one of his customers. But this is how simplicity shows up with me as just art. Thank you. And Jacob also, thank you. Okay, Samantha, what did you bring? So my object is a selenite stone. It's a crystal. Um, and it's known, I, I put it on my desk, and it's actually known to drive calm and balance. I use this as a metaphor for simplicity. First, I'd like to take it's another setback, which is um, simplicity to me is different from simple. And to me, this stone and simplicity is how you are able to drive clarity over cleverness. And which for me means how do you get to the core fundamental idea and just block out all the noise? Because oftentimes you get confused when things are often complex and complicated. And so in the topic of inclusive storytelling and driving equity, it's a continuous journey, right? The stone is round. It's for us to drive clarity, but it's a continuous journey. Um, so that's what simplicity means for me. Thanks, Samantha. Elle, please. 
I apologize because I know for the podcast, this might be hard, but I will verbalize what's happening. For the purpose of the exercise, can you raise your hand if you know what this is? This is my menstrual disc. And so I, I realize I have to explain what it is for people who don't know. So a menstrual disc is an alternative to using tampons or wearing a pad. It's a small silicon disc that you put inside your cervix during your monthly cycle and it catches your blood. And when you go to the bathroom to urinate, it empties itself and you don't, it's unlike the moon cups and things like that. You don't have to touch it or get messy. Um, it just does it all on its own. And for me, it is the simplest thing. I've thought long and hard, what is the object that I own that has given me the greatest simplicity and is also giving society and sustainability benefits. And so for me, it's this because it's a small silicon disc. It's created in one mold. It's one of the simplest things that I own. But over the years, um, women's periods have been things that have been, people have had to use rags. Mm -hmm. uh, the average woman now uses uh, 10,000 tampons in her life. She pays tax on those tampons in most countries, which is controversial and problematic. Because we had to stem our monthly flow, which takes up many, many days of a woman's life with rags, it, there's this perception that a period is unhygienic and we call things hygiene products. Whenever I see that written on a bathroom door, I take a pen, I cross out hygiene, I write <laughs> menstrual. Because it, the implication is that periods are unhygienic and actually they're not unhygienic. It's just the things that we use to cope with them that make them unhygienic. Uh, the fact that we've been using unhygienic things to cope with periods means that women have been um, not allowed into places of worship when they're on their mm -hmm. cycle in some cultures for years and years and years. And so there's a, a huge amount of societal shame that goes along with that. When you're 13, if you aren't able to speak to your mother about what's going on for you like many people my grandmother famously thought that she was dying didn't tell anyone for a long time but this also has physical benefits to me because not putting a tampon inside myself means that I'm not exposed to both bleach and phthalates phthalates mess with women's fertility so we're also messing with our fertility through using things that um, are not sustainable because the other great benefit is that this is very very good for the environment because of those 10,000 tampons which are made from trees and are also often to blame for ruining systems and toilet systems that were built by men to not process women's menstrual products so for me this is uh, just the epitome of simplicity on a personal level a social level a societal level and for sustainability thank you i will never go to a bathroom in the same way again <laughs> that is super super interesting thank you jamie how can you follow that that's very hard to follow that <laughs> i'm a completely different director uh, so I think about simplicity in terms of the absence of complexity and the, one of the things that I look at in my life that take less steps, require me to do less work. And the one that I came up with was, for those who don't know, Tesla app, because that these are my car keys. This is how I get diagnosed something that's wrong with my car. This is how I get updates to the car so that I am not literally in three years other than once take it into a dealer or a service place. So it is, um, for me at least, and it's hard to learn, we were talking about earlier, it's a little hard to learn it, but once you learn it, mm -hmm. uh, what I find is that it has really simplified, you know, I want a car to get me from one place to the other. And so it has simplified all the other things that go along with that. And um, I, it 
pulls in the important pieces of my life that I want with me at the time. It's very easy to call people or have music or find directions. Um, and the servicing side of it all comes through the phone or through the actual car. And so for me, at least, it has been extremely simplifying in terms of how I typically think about like a car. And we had, my daughter is actually visiting from college and her car is not this and needed a lot and needed some servicing and the amount of effort I had to mm-hmm. go through to get the car serviced and updated and pay for that and schedule that was, it just surprised me how far away from that I felt after just a little bit of time having something that was, you know, a little more technology enabled. So the object that I bring is actually my yet to be born baby <laughs> in a month. The reason why I say that is I think if you think about the biology and the millions of evolution. This is the most simplistic thing in the world, but it's the most complex mechanism. Mm -hmm. And um, if you think about how we develop artificial intelligence, the GPT is taking over the world right now, you think about it is the hardest part in AI today is not necessarily the large language model. It's not the data, we have both. It is the neuroscience and brain science to actually to make AI efficient. Otherwise, it's burning the tech, burning energy in the data centers, which is not sustainable. So when I think about how beautiful it is to create a human being, and then related to this topic about inclusion and uh, equity, is that many uh, panelists mentioned if 97% of the developers behind the game are white males, then you can't build a game which is inclusive. So if the younger generation don't understand inclusiveness and equity, then we can't build a new generation which is inclusive and equal. So I feel it's our responsibility, including myself, to teach my yet-to-be-born son that what it actually means. So yes. That's wonderful. And I would love to invite your son to join us this time next year. <laughs> Back back on the panel and we would love to have you both here so thank you we look forward to that all right so final round we're going to start with Elle and go all the way back to Tiffany so very briefly folks we're getting to the end of the conversation and again I always want to reflect on you know what am I learning through this whole process and one of my deepest learnings in working with brands for over a decade now is that brands are largely a product of the commitments they make Arguably, that's true of us as humans as well. We're a product of the commitments we make that informs our behavior, our mentality, as you mentioned earlier, and indeed so many of the choices we make. So the theme of International Women's Day 2023 is indeed embrace equity. So my question or my prompt, what is your organization's or your personal commitment to forging gender equity And because this is a very data-centric crowd, how will you measure progress? Thank you. Yeah, it's a really good question. And I have been thinking a lot about what it means to me personally for a bit. I made an acceptance speech in November at the AAF and my baby was in the audience, which was a really big deal because there were no children there. I was told you could bring family and then I, I was showing up on my own, the only person holding the baby. And, but I really felt like I wanted to speak to her. And what I've realized is that a lot of people who have as strongly held beliefs as I do, because I'd say I probably am slightly on the more radical side of embracing equity, a lot of them tend to leave. A lot of them tend to leave corporate businesses. They tend to 
take career breaks or consult from the outside. And these people I admire so much, like Lola Bakare, like Kat Gordon from the 3% Conference. I could name a long list, I'm not going to, we don't have time. But they tend to leave, they tend to do their own thing, or they, or they tend to start equity-driving businesses from the outside. And I think it comes back to one of the points that you made earlier, Margaret, which is around there's this um, moral narrative in capitalism, which is that if you're not driving shareholder value, you are behaving unethically towards shareholders. But in a scarcity world where anything that is investing in driving equity is taking away from driving the bottom line, you can see how that narrative perpetuates. And in a moment like now where there is financial scarcity, you see a lot of DEI teams getting cut. You see a lot of brand teams driving DEI getting cut. You see social impact teams getting cut. And actually, they are the same. And so my personal commitment is that I'm going to stay I'm going to be a CMO, I'm going to be a CEO in corporate businesses, not in the impact space, and connect commerciality and growth to doing good and building a more equitable capitalism, because I believe that it's possible. I just don't believe that enough people who are truly committed to it are finding the environment okay enough for them to stay. I I mean, to build on that, I I would say at a personal level, but certainly at a company level, in every company that I have been at and will go to, um, I think it starts with challenging the gender normative assumptions we have. And coming out of the pandemic, you know, let's just start with work and women in work. We have a unique opportunity to really embrace what remote hybrid work of what the new definition of work is and 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 you know and I, and I see these themes where there's been flexibility but some constraint of that flexibility as we see this kind kind of heightened macro context and so it really does start with like to me just on a very micro everyday level right as a marketing leader in your organization or in the personal passions you have how are you showing up how are you recruiting Um, who are you promoting? And, you know, people often think that you have to be in a certain position in order to be empowered to do that. But I've done a ton of work. I continue to do it today personally, but in all of my corporate organizations with, with, with the API community, with female leaders and managers to understand that irrespective of your role, you need to challenge those norms and you need to um, raise your hand for that opportunity um, put yourself out there. I, I mean, obviously this is a very multi-layered and deep conversation. So I think my commitment is just, it starts with yourself and how you show up personally and in, in the work world and with the people that you work with um, and challenging those assumptions um, because women are actively taking them out of, taking themselves out of the quote unquote race because they don't feel like they have the support system to allow them to really excel at the most senior levels. Mm-hmm. Despite all the progress we've made, I mentor too many women to hear that they're just taking themselves actively out of these opportunities. I can do this in 60 seconds or less. My commitment is to continue to grow our game and the league and the awareness of our players and our teams. And the way we measure the way we measure growth is in three areas. One is going to be in how we elevate and grow our brands. We have brand tracker. The second area is how we engage our core fans and drive in new fans. There's over 53 million soccer fans that are addressable out there for us 
uh, built process segmentation we did with Deloitte, which is monumental fans, ritualistic fans, and mission-minded fans. So that's the second area is how we grow our consumption, our ratings, our fan growth, and engagement across all of our different channels. And the third area is commercial and revenue, how we monetize, how we grow our sponsorships, and how we grow our licensing properties, our ticketing, and so forth. So that's how we're going to continue to support. I have a professional, personal, they're both quick. In marketing and communications, which is the group that I'm a part of at LinkedIn, we have extensive analytics on the composition of our workforce at all levels, from the CMO to VP directors and all of our levels. And at least once a quarter, we sit down with our HR business partner and analyze the trends. Who are we hiring? Who's getting promoted? Um, who's our top talent? If they're a top talent that needs some skill building, are we getting them mentors or sponsorships? So it's a very measurable, proactive program, and we are accountable for that. In addition to that, I am the most senior black woman in marketing and communications. And so I take a personal responsibility, not only to be a role model and to sponsor and mentor, but to do excellent work so that I can inspire others and show the way in terms of what the capabilities are, that you know, there's, there's no differentiation between my performance and anyone else's. So I kind of try to lead from the top and at the beginning do great work and beyond that um, bring others along through mentorship, sponsorship and making sure that our trends in terms of who we're hiring, who we're advancing represents a diverse workforce. Great. And I think by the same token, I think my professional and personal are very uh, intertwined. But for Nielsen overall, and I am—I recently became the chief people officer, for, so for our people also, uh, and then for the people I engage with personally and professionally, it really is ensuring that every voice is counted, but really importantly, every voice is heard. And I think that um, you know, we tend to get caught in the counted game mm -hmm. way more than we get in the herd game. And so uh, I think it's the herd that is the most important piece of that. I believe um, seeing is believing. Um, for hyper-growth companies, women always shy away taking maternity leave, um, always struggle when they come back, um, don't know how to talk about that with their managers and their team. And I think it's my personal commitment to make sure that I'm not only just doing that for myself, but I'm doing that for my company and for my team that take the maternity leave. It is okay to do that, but also to showcase that it, you, know, you can be the responsible person to enable the team to succeed while you're away. So um, it's my commitment to have that playbook set up for my company, for every single woman uh, in the company who well take the maternity leave to feel it's okay to take the leave and then to have a playbook to enable their team and um, and second of course um, we are actually actively hiring so so we want to make sure that you know being being the only woman and being the only diverse leader in the executive team it's my responsibility to drive the all the new hiring to be as representative as possible wonderful so in, in sincerely thanking our panel, here are my reflections. This, this conversation has illuminated many areas, from the importance of provenance and hometowns, to the role of marketing and representation and in culture, 
and the power of data, and of course, the potential of simplicity to unlock our humanity. Most of all, though, I'm struck by the conviction of our panelists and their optimism in your marketing and branding initiatives. From entertainment to B2B, early stage to enduring brands, B2B to B2C business models, all programs are navigating deftly, I would say, both business and inclusion goals with great confidence. It seems to me that the commitments that our six speakers are making today go beyond storytelling to story doing, go beyond making brand promises to keeping brand promises. And along the way, you are demonstrating the encompassing power of inclusive storytelling for brand building. Funnily enough, I'm reminded of the words of the American poet Muriel Kessner, Kessner when she said, the world is made of stories, not atoms. When brand leaders incorporate inclusive storytelling in your branding, we go beyond marketing that presents our brand's existence to marketing that presents and demonstrates our reason for being. Thank you, thank you all for sharing your stories and the stories of the brands you've helped to lead. And just as the simplicity objects that you showcased made the somewhat abstract idea of simplicity concrete, your stories provide gorgeous color and clarity as to how and why forging gender equity achieves brand development and business goals. I think I speak for all of us here in saying we look forward to tracking your progress as you live out the goals shared today. With that, thank you again to our panel. Thank you to our patient and wonderful live San Francisco audience. And thank you to Alison and Aisha, my partners in this program, and all of our Siegel and Gale colleagues. We wish you a wonderful Women's History Month. And please don't forget the podcast, How CMOs Commit. Love a follow, love a good rating. Thank you all.